Welcome to Planet Impact, a show about how non-conformist social entrepreneurs are changing the world. Here's your host, Manthan Shah. Samira, thank you so much for joining this podcast. You're the senior manager for the global impact at Salesforce.org. You've studied across Harvard, Stanford, and Oxford, and you've worked in so many na- countries that it's hard to count. <laughs> your work has been absolutely change-making across all sense of borders. So thank you so much for your work and being here. Yeah, thank you for the wonderful introduction and thanks for having me. Yes, so let's start in the beginnings. Could you please tell us about your childhood upbringing and how your school and college days were? Sure. So I come from a very hardworking, committed and generous family. Um, I was born in the US. So I was born outside of Chicago in a suburb. We lived in the you know, in Illinois for about 10 years before I moved to California. And I also lived for six months in England. And then at some point during my time in California, my family decided to move back to South Asia. So by origin, I'm half Indian and I'm half Pakistani. And it's an interesting mix because my mother was from Punjab in India, which is primarily Sikh. And my father was from Punjab in Pakistan, which is primarily Muslim. And at some point, my father decided he wanted to go back to Pakistan. So I've also lived in Pakistan for two years. So quite a varied sort of background. Um, My family would make frequent trips to India and Pakistan when I was growing up. So I think those experiences where I was seeing poverty firsthand as a child really had an influence on my outlook in life. And I always wondered why my life in the U.S. was so different from some of what I was seeing and I was experiencing. And I constantly felt this need or desire to get back in touch with South Asia, whether it's through having pen pals or visits or learning more. So I feel that was always a part of my nature and my background. As I mentioned in the beginning, my family was very committed, very generous. Um, My father would come home every day around five or six and have dinner with the family. He was in finance, so he was traveling into the city in Chicago, but he would make sure he was back to read with me to have dinner with the family. If there's anything I needed for a school project and whatnot, he was supportive, supportive of my passions, even the more adventurous ones, because his philosophy was, as long as I'm doing well in school, I can have the liberty to pursue other things and to explore other things. So he's always very supportive supportive of my pursuits like that. And he's extremely or was extremely intellectual, unfortunately, he passed away in 2015. Um, But we had a very close intellectual bond. So I used to ask a lot of questions and any questions I would ask, he would answer them. So I was very inquisitive as a child, I would say, in addition to being inquisitive, extremely introspective and sensitive, loved to read, loved to write, liked poetry, really was into the creative arts um, and human beings and people and human nature. I know I used to go to the library and particularly check out books about dreams because I was very interested in how reality interplays with where our mind works and the future. And I like things that were out of the ordinary. My mother was an extremely or is an extremely generous person. I'm still learning from her today. She gives so much of herself to 
her family, to her children. Um, she had a master's degree. At some point, she decided to take time off to really focus on us. I very much appreciate that. So she's a very generous and giving person. So anything that I've achieved in my personal life and in my spiritual life, I really do attribute to her and the way in which she's raised me as a more generous person with a generous outlook. So I would say this sort of upbringing of mine where my parents were very committed and dedicated and focused really helped me foster my personal desire to connect with other people along with the experience I was having going back to South Asia. I will say though, as with many other Asian American families, they were quite disciplined and quite strict. So there was only so much I could do. And I think that kept me sort of, for lack of better words, in line academically. Um, But as I mentioned, by nature, super committed. I think where things really changed or what was very eye-opening is when I went to Stanford, It was eye-opening at two levels, both personally and otherwise. It was the first time I was living away from home and didn't have sort of the routine and discipline that my parents uh, sort of created for me. I had to create my own. And I found that I was, in fact, even more disciplined than they were in terms of my routine and very sort of studious, structured, and hardworking. That never went away. I continue to try to hold on to my identity. It's the first time I felt I had an individual identity outside of my family. So figuring out what I wanted to do, what I didn't want to do, where my spirituality lies, that was all a journey that I experienced in college. Before going to college, I was not religious, but I was spiritual. I continue to remain so, but I experimented with some of the more traditional rules that someone being raised like as a Muslim might face. Um, and I realized that I'm less wedded to the to the religion and more wedded to this idea of humanity and helping one another and spirituality. So I took a very interesting course in college called um, Islam in China, where I learned about the Muslim population in China and how Islam was being practiced in a way that was somewhat blended with Buddhism among certain populations. So, And I took courses in Hindi. So I just really tried to broaden my horizons. But I focused on um, management science and engineering, which is an interdisciplinary degree. It is um, management, so business focus. And then you take the engineering core with your traditional engineers, like electrical engineers and mechanical engineers. And I remember I always wanted to switch majors to international relations or literature, but this seemed like a, the path of the future. And it seemed like a path that would lead to employment after college. So that did factor into my decision. Luckily, while I was pursuing that, I ended up concentrating in technology and public policy. And that really sort of opened my eyes to this entire world of one avenue to give back, which would be policy, intergovernmental organizations, government. I really got intrigued by the policy and rulemaking aspect. And I took another class, um, sort of ethics and public policy. And that really exposed me to the various ethical frameworks and dilemmas people face around morality when making decisions on how to use technology. So because that sparked my interest right after Stanford, I did uh, go and pursue a master in public policy at Harvard. But before I continue down the academic route and go there, what I was really trying to go with the the college discussion is um, it also opened my mind personally. I think being a woman of South Asian descent and just having the experience in different settings that I've had as an had as an adolescent, I think it was very important for me to establish a certain level of elevated confidence. And that really came in college when I felt appreciated 
um, in a unique way as a woman. I felt desirable as a woman for the first time because I'm, you know, South Asian. I think a lot of different things sort of were at play earlier in my life. And that opened my eyes, I think, in such a way that I had the confidence to put myself out there more. And that's been an asset. And I attribute that to the Stanford experience. Stanford is very collegial. People help one another out, but every other person is so brilliant, bright, and hardworking that even though it's not overtly competitive, you still feel that sense of competition. Um, so overall, although it was a challenging experience, as I mentioned, it was eye-opening. So then I went to Harvard. I got my um, master in public policy and from there sort of kicked off my career. But I'll pause there. That's the primary sort of, I guess that's the primary lens through which I would describe my background, which was really sort of international and interdisciplinary as well as I recognize this desire in me to really that cuts across time, it cuts across space, it cuts across borders to sort of help and engage with other people, both in my mind creatively, as well as on the ground. Wow. So did you decide to do a master's in public policy from Howard right after you graduated from Stanford? You took no gap year? No, I didn't take a gap year. I just went directly, applied for my master's. I was so interested in the public policy aspect of it that I just yeah. wanted to get that background so that I could kick off my career in an intergovernmental or a government organization. That was sort of my plan, the UNDP or working internationally and whatnot. Right. And um, I just realized so your plan was never really into community impact work. It was like you exploded as you went through Stanford to Harvard. Is that correct? Yeah, that's that's interesting. So very astute of you to pick up on that. I um no, I would say I was oriented toward sort of giving back and I was oriented toward community related work. So in high school I volunteered at soup kitchens. I was very involved in the community and I wanted to give back through the lens though of an intergovernmental organization or the government because I thought those were game-changing institutions, at least, you know, when I was in school. Those were the primary ways you could really have an impact on society. I actually, the flip side is I didn't know I would go into corporate America. I actually never thought I was going to go into corporate America. So I think that was very different from me and happy to sort of go into that journey a bit. So it was kind of the opposite of what you're saying in terms of where I ended up. Okay. And before we get into your corporate life, you worked with uh, NK Narayan, one of the, I mean, how was that experience? And could you please tell us about that story? How did it go? Yeah, sure. So MK Narayanan came to Stanford as a security fellow. At the time, he was in a state position of leadership in government. And thereafter, he became a national security advisor. So he was with the Intelligence Bureau prior. Um, so he was at Stanford for a summer. He needed somebody to help support him in his research and in, his, in this writing he was doing. I was very interested, as I mentioned, throughout in South Asia. Very soft, sweet guy, completely personable, very, very caring. He would share his snacks with me. He treated me like a peer and he was, I don't know, in his 60s or something, 70s at the time. So it was, it was quite amazing like that. He really became almost a, an older friend of mine. And every time thereafter for almost 10, 12 years, whenever he would come to DC, we would have dinner with his family. Um, I visited his house in Delhi. He had me over. He 
you know, took me out to dinner in, in Delhi also to sort of give me a taste of some of the food there. So just had a very soft spot for me, extremely kind man. And it was surprising to me because I was intimidated at first, you know, somebody who's worked for the intelligence bureau and somebody who works for national security. I thought he would be just hardlined. And instead he was one of the most gentle people I've ever met and very sensitive and intuitive with a very sort of high EQ. So I remember he met me many years later in Washington, D.C. And he said, you've changed. You're not the same sort of girl I worked with at Stanford. And I had, in fact, quite, you know, changed quite a bit. So it was a wonderful, beautiful, beautiful friendship we had. Um, but I haven't been in touch with him for the past few years. Yeah, I think I just, as I mentioned, I lived sort of, you know, with my family and was sort of very focused on my academics as a student. After I left Harvard, there were certain experiences I had that changed me. And one of the most transformative experiences is one that I had in Bangladesh. So I had a full-time offer from Accenture to join consulting. I deferred the offer, which is obviously a risk. It was accepted. And I took a Fulbright that I had applied to uh, in Bangladesh to work with acid violence victims. So I was very focused on vulnerable populations and still am, particularly women and children. And I was working on a daily basis at the Acid Survivors Foundation in Dhaka with these women who needed legal help, psychological help. And I was also trying to write their stories at the same time. So that year was beautiful in that it really sort of allowed me to connect with my creative spirit and face some things about myself that I had never had an opportunity to face. It was really a mirror year. And I really have never gotten that kind of a year before. And it was also transformative in the sense that I was working so closely with people who had led very, very difficult lives. And one of the things that stands out most to me is they were also shunned by their families and their communities. I could never imagine that the way you look or a life experience could turn you away from your loved ones. So that, and then just corporate America. Corporate America is not like academics, it's rough. So I had become a little bit cautious, a little bit hardened, I would say, in a different way. Fulbright is one of the very prestigious scholarships. And I read a few of your articles from Howard Press and other publications on your experiences working with the acid survivors. And it was just very moving your narrative of their lives. And I think you mentioned like gaps in the society of how those could be changed. And it was just so well written. I mean, it moved me so much while preparing for this interview. I'm glad that you sort of looked at those pieces. I often wonder if anyone reads things like that. And that was the purpose because I always thought that if I could just write, if I could just truly sort of unpackage and tell these stories, people could look at it through a different lens. Always been very expressive, you know, used to take drama as a child, and but it's mostly been writing that's been my main vehicle. So I really admire other people like photographers and journalists who do it really well. My way has been more through the creative writing lens, but I'm glad that their stories were coming across and touching you that, that really sort of means something to me because that was my purpose in doing those stories. Oh, furthermore, it inspired me. I mean, I was pursuing a course diploma in creative writing. I, after reading that article, oh wow! honestly, I was like, well, I could use my creative writing skills not only to write a book on nonfiction, but also uh-huh. tell narratives of these people in my community. And so thank you for writing it. Oh, that makes me so excited that you're thinking of doing that. That's wonderful. I, you know, I would love to sort of read some of what you write one day. So be sure to share it with Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I'm going to share the link of your writings in the bio below. Sure, please do. I I look forward to other people's reactions. Yeah. 
Okay, superb. Moving on again to Harvard, and then there you got a chance to work with the Iraqi minister, and then still now Iraq has been quite a state of conflict. So, how was that experience? Yeah, no, that's a good question. So I'm going to get a bit more academic on us now. Um, so that experience was interesting in the sense that the key question for this second year paper or thesis, for lack of better words, was how do we increase women's participation in higher politics? Given who I am and it's from my background to date, I was approaching the issue very much through a lens of culture, of economic opportunities for these women. How do you open up their families' minds so that they pursue certain economic opportunities that then leads to networks and pathways to political life? How do we support them culturally so that they have the confidence. So I was pursuing that. And my advisor at the time, Pippa Norris, who's one of the leading experts in sort of democratic systems and regimes, was like, think about this a little bit differently. And as I started unpackaging the research for um, this Iraqi minister, what I recognized is that even in a state of conflict, you know, she was based in Jordan, she was working on government issues in Iraq, even in the most chaotic situation, um, there are certain systemic things and systemic systematic things that need to be changed and need to be in place. So to really think about the institutions and incentives and how policy and regulatory frameworks can be used as a way to guide people. So yes, culture needs to change, business needs to change, but you also need the right language in place sort of at a government level to create a system that allows those business and cultural decisions to come to light. And one of the key takeaways was that when you have a ballot, the reason why people often aren't choosing women is based on the way the ballot is structured. So if you zip the ballot and put one man, one woman, one man, one woman, it's more likely for the individual to vote for the woman. So there's a number of nuances and structural things, design things that need to be in place to really encourage people. So I began thinking more about incentives and visibility as opposed to these cultural elements that I was more comfortable thinking about. That puts so much perspective towards having women in ministerial positions in the parliaments. That is just amazing. I mean, so moving on, after you graduated from Harvard and your Fulbright scholarship, you joined Corporate America. You worked at Accenture, Good Harbor, Toffler, Facebook from year 2007 to 2011. How did that go about? Because your experience was into policy, business and more like impact. And then corporate life came into a place. What was the purpose behind it? Yeah. Yeah. So after I pursued the Fulbright, as I mentioned, I had plans to join Accenture. And I'll be honest, I haven't shared this with anybody, I think, before. I had these pangs of, I wouldn't say anxiety, but nervousness. I, I thought, okay, I'm going to leave a developing world context. Again, I always thought I would be on the ground, working with people one-on-one, doing development work, doing this sort of intergovernmental work. And being in Bangladesh was really rough. My family was in the States. I knew I had to get a proper job and go back. And there was this proper job waiting for me at a consulting firm. Most people would say yes right away because you get paid decently. You also just learn a lot, but I was very nervous about it. So I tried to apply to law school. I tried to apply for a PhD at Cambridge. And ultimately, though, I decided it's time for me to work and to join sort of the traditional workforce. And the thing is, I wasn't getting the exact type of opportunities I was looking for in the government and intergovernmental space. It was a lot of working my way up. And I was advised by people that consulting would be a great place to learn. It was a very practical decision. And I think being in Bangladesh, just under the free sort of circumstances, 
I was in and just my personal life at the time, I had to get out. And this was the opportunity that was there. And so it would be unwise for me to have turned it down. However, I will say that it was one of the best decisions of my life, although it was not sort of fully aligned with my passion because consulting is, in fact, I believe a very good place to learn business skills and have a particular toolkit. So I joined Accenture's public service strategy practice that works with governments and social sector organizations. So it was the best of both worlds in that I was consulting for the types of institutions that interested me and solving some of their hard problems while um, also just being in corporate America and having that stability and that cadence. So I joined Accenture. And then after that, um, I had an opportunity to join a professor of mine, Richard Clark, who used to work um, in the Clinton administration as a security advisor. He started a consulting firm in Abu Dhabi. And through my network, you know, I heard they were hiring. He's like, do you want to come over? So I joined um, them and did ex- economic and security related consulting in Abu Dhabi. Then for personal reasons, had to come back to the US and joined a future focused consulting firm, which is Toffler Associates. So each step of the way I was learning and growing in terms of my consulting toolkit. Facebook was a little bit different. Um, it was my first experience with tech in the Silicon Valley, different culture, different pace. And looking back, as I mentioned, what I realized is I like the varied experience. I like the challenge, especially in today's world. You know, we're now in a pandemic situation. Having that type of resiliency and ability to deal with change quickly is so important alongside having business acumen to really make things happen. So if I look at it retrospectively in hindsight, I think that experience was actually great. And it was instrumental that I have that strong corporate base, but with an eye toward the social sector. Superb. So do you do you suggest everyone to experience deliberately as well as in terms of luck to go out and just explore all the opportunities that you have before you decide anything? <laughs> You're asking such a tough question. Um, My answer is no, because one of the bigger regrets I have is I've always known that I wanted to work one-on-one, as I mentioned, with people and write. My passion is to write a novel and creative writing. Um, It's not my only passion. Obviously, I am enjoying tremendously game-changing systematic change uh, through technology and business model change. And the entire social impact space has changed so much. And I've witnessed it change. And I've been at the sort of forefront of that. So I do have other passions. But I think if you feel really, really strongly about something, you need to weigh your sort of options and think really hard if you want to pursue that early on. Because one of the regrets I do have, or I do wonder, is what if I had just started by just becoming you know, becoming a novelist and doing this work on the side, what would my life be like? How would it be different? A very sort of future focused person who's a dreamer. So I'm now focused on my future and how do I get better connected to that side of my life? But I wouldn't say that if you know what you want to do, you should explore everything. In my case, it worked out really, really well. And I couldn't have predicted how all the dots would be connected today, um, which often happens. But I think it's a really personal decision where you have to look inside and make the right decision given your circumstances. Thank you. That was very insightful. After your corporate life, you joined AT Carney, who are one of the biggest consultants in the world. And there you wrote this piece called Creating Value by Doing Good. And here, a personal story from me is, on this day today, one year ago, I joined Ashoka. And on one of the first oh, days... Congrats. Um, congrats. And it's your birthday. It's your Ashoka anniversary and uh, near your birthday, right? Yeah, so, it is. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. And it's also the anniversary of how our 
I mean, I saw your book one year ago today because upon entry, they give you like certain booklets and a lot of literature. And uh-huh. uh, Sumitra was my mentor. She's such a sweetheart. She's such an amazing person. So one she of the- is vibrant, very vibrant woman. Amazing. Yeah. So yeah. And one of the papers she gave me was the paper that you wrote at AT Carney and AT Carney are the strategic partners of Ashoka. And that really... Um, educated me a lot about CSR and the growing trends in it. So thank you for writing it. And I feel privileged to reconnect to you today. <laughs> That's very kind of you to say. Firstly, did you feel like coming home when you started working at AT Carney? Did I feel like coming home? You mean when I was in Southeast Asia? Yeah. Oh, that's okay. Um, you picked up on that. Yeah. So I started in AT Kearney actually in Washington, D.C., working for the public sector. Then I went to California and then I linked up with Sumitra's husband, Naveen Menon, who was a partner at um, AT Kearney in Singapore, is super passionate about starting social impact practice. And I was as well. So we put our heads together, did some thinking, and I moved over to Malaysia. Um, ideally, I would have wanted to have stayed there and deepened my impact in the region as that not just Southeast Asia, but extending to South Asia. And we were kind of on that path. And then from there out globally, I thought it was really interesting to do sort of an Asia outplay with regards to the locus of social impact and the expansion of it, as opposed to sort of a US, Europe-based headquarters and then expanding from there. So it was a tremendous experience. We were really just starting to, you know, pick up and do certain things and establish certain partnerships. We had spent a long time on the strategy. I didn't really want to leave at all. Um, It was a very, very difficult decision for me, but it was for, again, a lot of personal circumstances that I actually had to come back. And one of which was my father was extremely ill. So he was in Malaysia and then he went back to the US. Um, He was with me with my mom. That's how I've managed to go all over the world and travel because I do have children. And he came back and then my mom followed and, you know, he was really unwell. So it just, he passed away when I was in Malaysia and soon after I left Malaysia. That wasn't the only reason, but it was one of the driving factors. I'm so sorry for your loss. Thanks. Moving on to the final question of the first phase. Um, do, you, do you have any recommendations for the youth who want to create a change in the society, be it being an entrepreneur or an entrepreneur? What do you, how do you think they should go about it? I think one thing is to definitely learn as much as possible and to keep learning and to try and connect with other entrepreneurs, to network across ages, older people, younger people. I do this across generations now is to just continue to learn and grow your network. The world is becoming increasingly complicated. The problems are systemic. They're more cross-sector in nature. We need to attract more resources, more capital to social entrepreneurship, to sort of corporate responsibility and social impact. So being in touch with the capital sources, as well as the doers on the ground, like the impact actors and grassroots organizations, that type of a cross-sector lens, a lens toward um, business and attracting more capital and a systemic view through learning and continuing to build your knowledge base is extremely important to know your stuff and to be able to identify creative opportunities that present themselves and to act quickly and opportunistically on those those sort of opportunities opportunities. I would say that even more so than that, um, however, it it is important to uh, take risks and utilize your network to do it and not sort of think too hard to sort of have an intuitive directional approach. Yes, you will be wrong, but I've learned the hard way to really try to put yourself out there. And what's the worst that can happen? Someone can say no, 
or they will not react well and you will learn and you will grow and you will develop further. I mean, unless it's really egregious and you're putting a a minor risk, you should be constantly taking risks and growing and expanding your comfort zone. I think I may have mentioned that I can come from a quite a disciplined childhood and it was very important to do well. And so I found myself being very perfectionistic about my, for lack of better words, I don't know if that's a word, about my approach and trying to perfect things as opposed to putting them out and letting the market react. We're moving in such a fast-paced world. So the only way your knowledge can manifest itself into something real and be tested is if you put it out there and you put it out into the market. So I think testing and collaborating and co-innovating with the market and not just learning from it is also very important in a cross genera- in, in sort of a cross-generational way. Those are some gems of uh, insight about going about creating an impact. Thank you for sharing that. Ms. Samira, we are entering a lightning round. It will be a set of 10 questions and you have to answer them in the most lightning and candid fashion. <laughs> okay. Are you ready? I told you I'm, I'm very thoughtful. So I don't know if I do well with these things, but sure, I'm ready. Let's go. So the first question, what is your favorite book? I like The Unbearable Lightness of Being. So I love Milan Kundera's writings. Can um, I say more than one? I also like Thrive, which is nonfiction <laughs> and big magic. All right. Go for three then. One or three, that's a better number. Okay. Oh, said. sorry. I cut out. Okay. Okay. I'll go again. So um, Unbearable Lightness, Milan Kundera's writing his short stories, and then Thrive, um, which is nonfiction by Ariana Huffington and Big Magic. Big Magic. Wow. Good set of books. I have to read all of them, I think. The second question is, what is your favorite music, being it, being it an artist or a song? I love you too. So I love Bono. Just the depth of lyrics is, is very beautiful and the way it sort of strings words together poetically. Is that on your playlist right now? Um, it, it comes and goes. So, But I love music. So I know this is a lightning round. So I don't want to give you too much information, but I have all sorts of artists. You should totally have people follow me on Spotify. I have all kinds of playlists there. I absolutely love music. That's how I get through life. Oh my God, I'm following you right away. <laughs> Third question is, what is your favorite travel destination? I love Japan. I would like to explore more and see it more. It's unlike anything I've ever seen or unlike any other culture I've experienced. A follow-up question. How many countries have you been to? Oh, gosh. I, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. A lot of Asian countries, European countries. I haven't touched Africa. I haven't touched uh, South America. Um, I've touched, you know, Central America, but j- a lot, but still much more to go. Just for a fact, I think it's a lot means she means like 50 or above because the amount <laughs> of papers I've read and with the title of different countries and different cities, I was like, wow. Yeah, I can I can say Uzbekistan, Bhutan, you know, those kind of countries, those more obscure countries as well, but I'll count after this call. <laughs> Sounds good. Moving on, who who's your f- most inspirational figure and why? Yeah, I knew you, you know, you mentioned that this might come up and I normally would have said somebody else, but this past year actually was difficult. There's a woman named Leila Jana who is passed away. She's was a bit younger than me and she passed away this year. She was an entrepreneur. She started something called Samasource that connects people in Africa um, who didn't have a certain skill set with tech jobs by partnering with entities in the States. So I really view her entrepreneurship, how she fought 
um, really hard and worked really hard till her last breath on this enterprise. It is inspiring. She's my age. Um, just all that she was able to accomplish. She wrote a book on sort of the future of work and, and what work really means. All of that really, really inspired me. I, I encourage you to look her up, Leila Jana, and Leila read up Jana. on her. She started Samasaurus. Yeah, she was at, at Harvard around the same time I was at Harvard. Wow, super. Wonderful. So, fifth question is, what is one object from your childhood that you still have or you'd never throw away? So super typical, but I have it right in front of me because my daughters are using uh, it this, these days. It's a doll, a doll that my father got me in England because I lost an original doll and left it in America when we moved to England. He tried to replace it. He could never replace it. That scar still remains. We searched for that doll. We had given it away and went back, couldn't get it. So whatever he replaced me with is a different doll. She's still quite beautiful and dear to me. And I will just like never give her away. What is one I can share. You- I can share a picture of her if you want. Oh, that'll so be really cool, though. Yeah, could you please send me that picture? I'm going to put it up. I will. Okay. <laughs> what is one thing you you wish your phone could do? Yeah, I'm going to answer that in a bit of a twisted way because it's not really the phone. It's an app on the phone. I wish that it's a little nerdy. I wish that LinkedIn would be able to tell me what people are interested in, like what causes and sort of which geographies they're interested in. So I could link up and form little mini networks with all the people who are interested in the same sort of type of social change I am. So that's kind of something I wish it could do. Oh, that is very thoughtful of you. Apart from making the camera making me look like 20 years younger, that wouldn't be a bad thing either. 10, 10 years younger. <laughs> I think you look far younger. I mean, I haven't seen you in person yet, but <laughs> LinkedIn photo. And I think you, I, I wouldn't have expected. I was like, when you said you have three daughters and I was like, you do? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just conscious of it. I would love the permanent Benjamin Button effect from the phone, but I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. <laughs> Oh, also, just for the re- listeners to know that you've been so generous and kind with LinkedIn and creating the small networks. And you gave me so many opportunities. You sent me all those screenshots and all that. I was like, ah, so it was so heartwarming. So I, I'm very grateful for that. Thank you so much. Oh, that's I'm glad you appreciate it. And sorry, it wasn't more organized, you know, just going through the day, just shooting stuff off. But I'll try to help wherever I can. And um, anyone should be should come to me and I'll do my best in the circumstances that exist. Wow, thank you. You just you just have a very golden heart. So the seventh question is, what is one uh, piece of literature or a poem that you must have memorized? Or if so, would you like to share it with us? Yeah, you know, I I, I was thinking about this and I used to have a lot memorized, but as you can imagine, with all the sort of things going on in my life, I don't have as many memorized, but there's something I like. So again, I'm going to cheat a little. I like to bend the rules, not break them. So I'm going to read something to you, if that's all right. Does that work? Okay. So to love, to be loved, to never forget your own insignificance, to never get used to the unspeakable violence and the vulgar disparity of life around you to seek joy in the saddest places, to pursue beauty to its lair, to never simplify what is complicated or complicate what is simple, to respect strength, never power, above all, to watch, to try and understand, to never look away, 
and never, never to forget. Do you have any guesses as who wrote as to who wrote that? I was just wondering if you've heard it before. I was thinking that you wrote it. <laughs> no, I'm not reading my writing. Um, I, I, I could, but I'm not. It's Arundhati Roy, so I thought it was very well written. I know people have mixed feelings about her because she's got very strong opinions, but I like and I respect that she has strong opinions and shares them. So I thought this was very well written. It, it is. I mean, just listening to it quite warmed me up. What, what is the one thing you have in your cupboard all the time? Yeah, my cupboard. So tea. <laughs> I must drink tea. I must have tea. So that's what, kind what of it tea? is these days. It used to be green tea, then was white tea. But I admit these days it's black tea. So oolong or just general black tea. Anything. I need my caffeine these days. So what is one single greatest embarrassment of your life? <laughs> so... I'm not going to share a single embarrassment, but I will share generally. So first of all, I would like to say my view on embarrassment is that it's a feeling and nothing is inherently embarrassing or not embarrassing. It's all the way you view it and people around you view it. (laughs) So I'd say the most embarrassing thing that I have done in my own personal opinion have been in the context of like my personal relationships in particular, like if I'm really into somebody or in the situation of like love related situations, that's when I've ended up embarrassing myself the most because my whole idea is if you can't take me like raw exactly the way I am, then maybe I don't want to be here. So subconsciously, I test that and I take that to the limit. So I think some of my most sort of embarrassing situations have been when I'm feeling really, you know, into someone and just have have just let go and just let them see all they can about me. I think I found that quite difficult, especially given how I am in other parts of my life. Your answers really render me speechless because they are so thoughtful. And I mean, I like that answer so much. I think deep down, I think we all can relate to that. (laughs) Okay, good. I feel human. (laughs) So the last question is, what is your single greatest achievement of your life? The single greatest achievement is having um, children. I know motherhood is often viewed as sort of commonplace. So many women all over the world go through childbirth. But still, I think for each woman, that is a huge accomplishment. Each woman is on a psychological, spiritual, emotional, and physical journey during the process of being pregnant and childbirth. I had a twin pregnancy. I was in the hospital for two and a half months. And I was told I couldn't move but once a week. That's a really long time to be in a hospital. So I had a particularly difficult pregnancy. I gave birth to slightly premature twins. And, you know, motherhood has been a journey since. I really had to pick myself right up after that, after getting out of the hospital for two and a half months to take care of the twins. I also have another daughter. And I think for any woman, um, it is a huge accomplishment to have children. And I have a lot of respect for that. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for sharing all these very insightful, inspiring and entertaining insights in this round, lightning round. Great. Well, thank you. Thank you for listening and sort of engaging with parts of myself that I haven't revisited in a, in a very long time. So the final thing, like, what are you working on right now? Would you need any help or would you need any volunteers or anything? And if so, how could they reach out to you? Yeah, so right now I'm really trying to think about what is the role that technology can play in accelerating the recovery process from the pandemic, as well as continuing to, to the extent possible, ensure that the most vulnerable populations like women, children, refugee communities, laborers are taken care of and protected with some sort of a security net while we see so many of our institutions you know, falling apart or 
you know, falling flat in some ways because we've never experienced this before or because there are resource constraints. So whether that be in a domestic context like U.S. and women and Blacks, Latinas losing their jobs, or if it's thinking about South Asia, um, I'm interested in both. I am, however, more interested in the international and Asian context in particular, because I feel like there are some populations that were already hit really hard by other circumstances, like poverty, are going to be hit even harder. And I think this represents a moment in time or a window where we can sort of shed light upon these issues that have been there for years and populations have been ignored. And we can double down on effect onto helping them. So anybody who's interested in sort of the COVID response through the lens of A, the most vulnerable populations, whatever they may be, and B, through the lens of Asian, South Asian context, should definitely reach out to me. I want to hear about the enterprises you're working on. I want to hear about who you're connecting with, what's working for you, what's not working for you, where you think the levers of change need to be. And apart from sort of the recovery solutions, I also want to find ways to elevate your work and elevate your voice. So we use this as an opportunity to shed light on sort of issues that needed to be tackled and that must be tackled going forward um, that are that are further away from home for some people in the U.S., and you mentioned being able to contact me, correct? Yes. So what would you prefer? Is it LinkedIn, email, other social media? Handles? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I'm pretty comfortable with people contacting me in any way. So um, I think on LinkedIn, I'm Samira Akon. So that's S-A-M-I-R-A-A and then K-H-A-N. I'm also Samira Lish on Instagram. Um, I also, you know, uh, respond to emails. I'm Samira.com at Gmail. So I would say for this type of a thing, obviously LinkedIn and Gmail would be best. Brilliant. Sounds good. I'm going to post the link to your LinkedIn and email in the description below. Mm-hmm. And that was it. I mean, thank you so much for joining me on this podcast and sharing your story. I've, I personally learned so much in this time and I just appreciate you spending time for this. Yeah, thank you for having me and would love from your sort of viewership if anybody has any, again, questions, wants to work on anything together, any reactions. I love interacting with people. Um, I'm generally don't have as many opportunities because I'm just so busy with day-to-day stuff. So the more the merrier. And now we're in this pandemic situation, so I'm in lockdown. Um, so I would really love to hear from people. Um, so if anything comes up, just let me know if there's anything cool somebody's working on. would love to hear about it. Sounds brilliant. Thank you so much. 